0: Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast, today bringing you the news to know for the week of August 24th. Before we get into the usual review of the stories. Just wanted to give a thank you to the thousands of you that are downloading the episodes every month. Very appreciative. The show has taken off beyond my wildest expectations when I started this just a little over a year ago. And so I thank you to the listeners for making this all possible. And next, I want to talk about an episode that's coming up. I'm recording it tomorrow. Not sure exactly when it's going to air, but I'm excited about this. Uh, I've taken on a new role. Myself and the Chief Nursing Informatics Officer at Peninsula Regional, that's Teresa Niblett, w- together we have taken on this new role where we now have 60 EPIC analysts reporting up to us and it's aligning the application teams with the clinical side of the organization and it's really a unique arrangement here. And so I'm going to be talking to Bill Russell about it. Some of the challenges that you can face when taking on a new team, trying to change culture, and I think it's going to be a really great show. So look forward to that coming up. So let's get to the news to know for this week. I'm going to start off with one out of Healthcare IT News about the uh, American Hospital Association asking HHS, to safeguard access to telehealth after COVID-19 this came out August 21st and this was an open letter to President Donald Trump from the American Hospital Association recommending actions that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services should take to safeguard access once the public health emergency ends I'm not seeing any indication that the public health emergency is ending anytime soon certainly not before the election no one's going to be coming out with any dramatic changes between now and then because that's politically dangerous. So whatever it is, it'll happen probably after the new year. Is my, that's my gut feeling. That's my editorial, by the way. It's not in the article here, but that's my, I think that makes sense. The uh, letter says that we uh, strongly recommend HHS and CMS develop a mechanism to cover and pay for audio-only telehealth services Given the essential role of such services in ensuring rural patients staying connected to their part to their providers, now that's interesting. I I firmly believe that, and I also recognize that the longer we allow this, the the, the longer it will take us to get rid of the audio only model and get to that audio video model, which is where we really want to be. I think. All providers will say that they recognize the value in being able to see and connect with their patient that's easy the problem is is the broadband access and that's the next sentence here stakeholders point out that permanently relaxing existing telehealth requirements won't be enough though because comprehensive access to telehealth must also include robust broadband expansion and that is Yes, yes, yes. I know the FCC is addressing this. It's going to take time since I think this is probably a two to five year journey that we do need the audio only for at least the near term. And then to wean ourselves off of that, we've got to get the broadband in place and then demand video visits. And so the letter here from the American Hospital Association makes a ton of sense, similar to what Many of the other specialty and uh, hymns and CHIME have all been saying, we need to make this permanent. So with CMIOs, we do have a role to play in this. We should be collecting data around patients' acceptance of telehealth. And if they're not accepting it, why? And is that because it's not working for them? The lack of broadband an issue, lack of cell phone device or whatever it is that they need to have a good connection, is that limiting them? and then we can be advocates for our patients and for our health systems and trying to get them that access. I believe that does involve getting into local and state-level politics, and so I encourage you to just share your data if you're able, de-identified, of course, but with the legislative bodies that have interest in this, I believe you will find that there are going to be people running for election or who are established in place who do want to contribute to helping us get the tools we need for our patients. Next article I'm going to jump to here out of EHR Intelligence and it came out on August 21st. Increased EHR usability has low impact on novice EHR performance. So this is a study it came out in Jamia and Here's the, the gist of it here. Having more EHR experience can decrease the number of EHR usability issues while also triggering performance growth for expert resident physicians. This is according to a recent study in Advances in Human Factors in Ergonomics in Healthcare and Medical Devices. I was wrong. It was not in JAMIA. Take that back. <laughs> it was in the journal I just mentioned here. Researchers found little performance growth for first-year resident physicians physicians. So what did they do here? They held two rounds of usability tests. This is over a three-month span and they're assessing the learning curve of 16 novice and 16 expert resident physicians. So first-year residents are considered the novices and year two residents are considered the experts. Researchers developed two medical scenarios based on the EHR difficulty, workflow, and EHR functionalities. And round one was hey a scheduled follow-up visit after a hospitalization for pneumonia, and round two was a scheduled follow-up visit after a hospitalization for heart failure. So very reasonable standard basic kind of visits. And then they asked the respondents to complete a system usability scale and there were 33 usability issues between both novice and expert resident physicians. So what did they find here? Of the 20 EHR tasks, the most common user issues were documenting new medication allergies, integrating a diagnosis, placing orders for basic metabolic panels, changing medication, and adding medication to a favorite list. That's terrifying. Those are really very basic skills that I would hope our first and second year users would have down really solid before we turn them loose in the EHR. So what did they come to the conclusion here? uh, demonstrates that achieving a certain level of proficiency from continued EHR use is not representative of a more usable system. So the uh, researchers did say that higher SUS scores by expert participants indicate that they may be more confident using the EHR compared to novice participants because of their prolonged use. The similarity in SUS scores between round one and two implicates the longer exposure to the EHR did not equate to users finding the system easier to use. And they do recommend, of course, this was a small study, single institution, so they recommend expanding it. But I think it's really good information to know for CMIOs as well as the EHR vendors that usability matters and not all usability is put on the EHR vendor. Sometimes it's what we do to the system how we set up the navigators, or whatever the tools are in the system, and how we configure the alerts, and the amount of wording that's in there, even the fonts that we use, some usability is on us as CMIOs. And so I encourage you, if you as a CMIO are not strong in usability, then hey, get an associate CMIO to get excited about it, and delegate this task, and have them go through different workflows and look for the usability problems. It is grueling work. It is just it takes forever to go through. Think of all the workflows that you'd have to go through to improve the usability. Eat the elephant in small bites. Take little chunks out and say all right let's look at the admission workflow for our hospitals and then let's look at our post-op workflow for our surgeons and just chip away at it. I do encourage you to To think about this article, one of the quotes from the article here is that it's a very complex space. The products that are being used by frontline clinicians are shaped by the vendor but also shaped by how that product is implemented at that provider site, how it's customized, and how it is configured. Absolutely true. So good luck and tell me how you do it because I'm working on it now myself. It's a long journey. All right, next. Also out of EHR intelligence, data standardization tool normalizes COVID-19 tests terms in the EHR. And this one came out August 19th. The author here is Christopher Jason. Patient data stored in EHRs is a crucial source of data for COVID-19 research and studies. While having access to the actual data is key, one requirement is to normalize or characterize the data to standard terminologies. To understand and address the pandemic, institutions such Uh, institutions have developed local codes and names for COVID-19 tests. I'm gonna jump over to a blog post that came from a colleague and friend of mine Dirk Stanley. If you don't follow Dr. Dirk Stanley, he's got a great blog and this was his June 20th, uh, excuse me, June 2020 blog post. And he just goes on about the different ways that you could have COVID-19 represented in your system. So perhaps you are calling it the SARS-2 novel coronavirus. Perhaps you're calling it COVID-19. Perhaps it's the novel SARS-CoV-2 RNA virus. Or perhaps it's the uh, novel SARS-2 CoV RNA virus. You could also leave off the novel part and come up with a SARS-CoV-2 RNA virus. And then perhaps you have in your diagnosis area, the COVID-19 disease or suspected COVID-19 disease or confirmed COVID-19 disease or novel SARS-CoV-2 pneumonia, all definite possible diagnosis that you could have in your chart. So going back to this tool here, think about, now as a researcher, you wanna find out, okay, uh, how many patients are positive for COVID-19? I know our local facility, we have a different name for our COVID-19 test. They put the manufacturer of the test in there. So we might have one test that's a three-hour test, another one that's a four-hour test. We have a one-hour test. We have a send-out test to the state lab, We send out to Mayo Clinic or the refer- whatever reference lab you use, perhaps LabCorp or Quest. All of these different names can be found in the EHR, making it really difficult for researchers to uh, to get their hands around this. So what they did they recognized the lack of mappings between standard LOINC codes and local COVID-19 testing terminology. In an effort to develop reliable data mappings, researchers developed COVID-19 test norm. That's the name of it. T-E-S-T-N-O-R-M. An automated tool to normalize and characterize COVID-19 testing terms to a standard LOINC code. The COVID-19 test norm tool was 98.9% accurate on the development set and then 97.4% correct on the independent test set. This means the instrument was reliable and effective in characterizing COVID-19 testing names to LOINC codes. Their final quote here is that, this offers a foundational first step in enabling testing data interoperability for research related to COVID-19. Absolutely incredibly difficult task. I'm glad they've taken it on, but here's my editorial point on this one. How do we get into this mess? In healthcare, we just don't have standards. So when COVID came out, we each came out with our own little cute names that would fit in our character-eliminated, uh, character-limited space that we have to display the test name. And I know in our results tree, I think we get 21 characters or something. I forget the exact number, but it's limited. And you can't just spell things out the way you might want to. So we come up with cutesy little abbreviations, and my abbreviations can be different than your abbreviation, which makes searching for this stuff incredibly difficult. So I'm glad there's someone out there who's come up with some way of normalizing it. How about even better? Let's not get in the mess in the first place. And so we just need to be better, more nimble, and better implementing and sticking to our standardization. If we're going to use Link, then let's all use Link. We don't all use Link. In fact, many of us don't use Link, which makes it really difficult when trying to do mapping across systems. Next article. This one comes out of healthcarebusinesstech.com. Came out on August 18th. The title is Optimizing a Wi-Fi Network for Healthcare. And they go on to talk about, I think it's four or five different strategies for optimizing Wi-Fi. Now this is really something that falls into the CIO's ballpark, generally speaking, and not as a CMIO. But I'm finding, particularly in my new role, gee, I'm needing to know about all kinds of different things. And so I figured I'm gonna read this article because I usually don't read these kinds of articles. So what do I know about optimizing Wi-Fi networks? pretty little actually. So went and and read this. Here's uh, tip number one that they say we should do for network optimization. Update your site survey. So when your network was first designed and deployed you probably had a site survey but since that time things have probably changed. Someone broke down a wall over there added an extension or a trailer out there and needed to suddenly build out a whole bunch of things for, for COVID and set up tents in all different places. So then they put in new, new obstructions, new walls or ceilings or whatever that they put in there, new, uh, uh, new frequencies that are interfering with the Wi-Fi network. So scheduling a site survey to understand where you've got weak spots. Your providers can probably tell you, yeah, when I'm in the ER in that back corner, I don't get any of the messages that I need to get. So you can also do a survey of your providers and find out where those weak spots are. Number two is to upgrade your devices. As a general rule of thumb, you have to upgrade your uh, wireless access points every three to five years. I did not know that. That's interesting to me because I would not have thought that a Wi-Fi device goes out of of utility in three to five years. So I think about my own device in my home. Yeah, actually, I kind of do upgrade it every three to five years. So uh, we should be thinking about that. And the impact that has on our providers because I know a lot of our providers do use the Wi-Fi. They don't want to use their own cell service. And if they do start using their own cell service, they start asking for the organization to pay for that. So having an up-to-date Wi-Fi system makes good sense. Prioritize network traffic is another one. And that's because not all network users are created the same. Any device that directly contributes to patient health should have network priority over someone who's playing Call of Duty. As an active Call of Duty player, I would be very disappointed if I did not have high-speed internet in order to blast my children away who usually just use me as target practice in Call of Duty because I stink. But I digress. The Bottom line here is that different is that routers do have that capability. Not all of them depends on check with your vendor, but some can prioritize the traffic that's coming over the network, and that's important to do. Next is to get 100% network visibility, which I didn't even know was possible. But you can tell what's going on with your network by understanding the traffic that's flowing over that network, and you can have 100% visibility. I didn't know that you could have 100% visibility. And then you could be monitoring that flow, and you could be saying, ah, we seem to have a problem with the traffic flow from a certain area. And that would highlight that you have a problem there, and then you could go and look to resolve that. And finally, it's run scheduled network tests. That one kind of makes sense. That's kind of bread and butter IT stuff here that we should be looking every week or month and kind of see where the surprises going to show up and head them off before there's major problems being able to identify that you've got network uh, segments that could be down or malfunctioning. So CMIO's take on this, I know very little about Wi-Fi network care and maintenance and I would encourage you to pick up an article that you probably would never normally read and just broaden your scope of knowledge. I'm finding The CMIO role is always changing, and having that little bit of knowledge squirreled away, you never know when you're gonna need it. And the more about health IT tech that you know, the better CMIO you're gonna be. Next, this one comes out of Optum Healthcare IT. It's Tips for a Successful Charge Capture and Champion Program. It was written August 12th. I'm gonna leave the author's name off of this for a second because I disagree with something the author wrote. As a matter of fact, they go on and talk about the seven tips that they give you for instituting a a tool where the providers are going to be capturing the charges rather than having the coders do it. And this is assuming that you're instituting, let's say, a new EHR and now you're turning on the charge capture tool and you're shifting that work to the providers. And we did this once at at a previous organization. We had the AHR in place, but we didn't have the charge capture tool turned on for the hospital-based providers. And so when it was turned on, it was very quickly turned off because I don't think we did the change management piece particularly well. And so they go on, it's very bread and butter change management, the things they start with here. So hey, have a plan, no kidding. Establish ownership, yes. Program support. I'm going to read this one. Uh, The program must be supported from the top down. Enlisting the support and ownership of the charge champion program must include all C-levels that have at least one sponsor who is publicly on board and acknowledges that they are ultimately responsible for revenue. Ideally, this is the COO, the CNO, the CEO or similar administrator and not the CFO. Hmm. Could they have left out someone here? Let me think about that for a second. Can anyone in the audience out there think about one key stakeholder who they left off that might be critical to a change management uh, program that involves getting providers to do new things like something they hate, billing and code capture. Perhaps the CMIO might want to be involved in this. To me, this is a glaring error. I'm sorry to the author here. I know you didn't mean anything by it. But, holy cow, trying to institute a charge capture program without the CMIO, being knee-deep in it, is a recipe for failure. Because no one's going to understand the workflows, no one's going to understand that the providers don't care about your charge capture, unless you're incentivizing them, working with them, involving them in this program this one's gonna be dead on arrival. And that's what happened to us when this thing got put in place and the providers hated it. So it got ripped out and then they had to redo it and go through the change management process like it should have been done. So they also go on to say another line here that I, I kind of disagree with. They're talking about the messaging. When creating messaging around this program, you'll want to ensure that you state that it's not about shifting the responsibility for monitoring and reporting revenue to the clinicians, but rather asking the care providers to use the tools provided to report on what they've been doing all along, just in a new way. And your clinicians are gonna see right through this and go, no, exactly what you're doing is shifting the responsibility for monitoring and reporting to the provider. And they're gonna hate it. I don't think you can sugarcoat it. I think you just got to call it out and say, look, we need accurate data. We have to be reporting on it. And here's why it matters. It's because your severity of index, your, your sepsis uh, scoring, your mortality numbers, how well your judge is doing as a clinician is being done through coding. And if you're not coding that your patients are seriously sick, then you're going to look like a poor performer compared to your peer group. So that matters to doctors. We all want to look good when we're shown in a national spotlight and none of us want to be shown as being underperformers. Well, part of that then means you got to code properly, not illegally, properly. And that means coding the actual severity of your patient and a lot matters on that. And if you share that data with the doctors, I think you'll have far more success. So yeah, I threw in an article that I disagree with a little bit there. Finally, I'm going to talk on an article uh, that's out of HITConsultant.net. The title of the article is Designing a Digital Experience to Drive Revenue and Patient Engagement. It came out by Bill Krause, who is the VP and GM for Digital Experience and Customer Engagement at Change Healthcare. This came out August 20th, 2020, and I really love this article, so I'm going to encourage you to read it. If, uh, if I remember while I'm setting up the, uh, the website here, I'll, I'll put a link to this article. I really like it that much. So here's a couple of points here. A recent survey found that more than 80% of consumers surveyed believed shopping for healthcare should be as easy as shopping for other common services. Specifically, they want streamlined access points online where they can shop for and purchase healthcare easily make appointments, understand what they need to pay, make the payment, set up payment plans, or even obtain financing if estimated costs exceed their budgets. And so everyone always says, well think about how easy it is on Amazon or to get a haircut. And you know what? I was sporting my COVID shaggy hair and so I needed a haircut. And I went on great clips and I have the app already on my phone. I clicked the app, I hit find me a, uh, a place, and three different spots lit up. One had a 68 minute wait. Another one had a 10 minute wait. I clicked on that one, reserved my spot online. It was two clicks to get my haircut scheduled. Could not have been simpler. So, do you have that for your healthcare system? Is it is it that easy to get an appointment? For most of us, the answer is no. So, Why is that? Because we rely on our patient portals and what I really like about this article is Bill goes on to say why you shouldn't rely on your patient portal. A couple reasons. Number one, portals are only for patients that have existing relationships with the provider. The patient experience begins when you're shopping for care. You haven't established your portal and your relationship and downloaded the portal app yet. So he goes on to say that that is a missed opportunity to generate new patient business. Number two, portals don't mirror what consumers expect from digital solutions. The interfaces are clunky, the functionality is limited and the technology only supports a pull strategy, meaning that it waits for the patient to come to it rather than periodically reaching out and prompting the individual to take action. Absolutely, yes. I'm in the process of doing a big portal push. I think having your portal up and running, that's table stakes. You got to have that, but that shouldn't be the end of the journey. And so I'm finding out why is it not the end of the journey? Because the portal is limited. And there's lots of add-ons that you could add to your portal that makes it better. And there's third-party tools that you bolt on. And you're like, well, I just spent a couple of million dollars on this EHR. You're telling me it doesn't have a tool that's great for, for consumer engagement? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Uh, let's see. Third, the patient must be logged into the portal before they can do anything with it which makes it harder to schedule appointments with new physicians. And that's sort of true. Most portals now have some way of capturing these new uh, patients and bringing them in, but you don't get the full functionality. If I schedule that appointment, can I cancel and reschedule that appointment? Is that possible through your website today for a new patient? Can I make that new appointment and then communicate with the doctor's office without downloading the app? Not so much. We're finding there's some limitations with the open scheduling tool that Epic gives us and that, That's it is limiting us in our ability to be creative and we want to capture the patients So that we could have them come to our health system. And that's why as a CMIO I am involved in this we want patient volume coming to our doctors and so your doctors will care about this too so you should care about it and you should be involved in the digital front door of your system. Uh, I'll read just another quote or two here from Bill. Bill goes on to say, to realize true engagement organizations should be thinking about ways to foster two-way conversations to keep new and existing patients focused on their health and how the hospital health system or physician practice can meet their needs. Goes on to give a couple of Uh, bits of advice. Number one, evaluate your organization's digital tools. Number two, streamline access to shoppable services. Number three, adopt tools that help people understand their care costs. That's a controversial one. Not everyone's going to agree but oh by the way the law is out there that you're going to have to do it anyway. So that should be less controversial now. We're going to have to put our costs out there. Uh, Number four, enable digital appointment scheduling extremely difficult to do. I think that I've been an amazing CMIO by delegating to my associate CMIO this wonderful project of getting the providers to agree to opening up their schedules to direct scheduling. Don't you think that's great? I've given her this wonderful opportunity to go out and engage with the doctors and help them see the benefits of access. She wants to kill me right about now probably. But (laughs) <laughs> the truth is, it has to be done. It's a very tough project and my hat's off to my associate CMIO, Maren Bonhoeffer, for going out there and getting it done. She really is uh, getting this one, bringing it over the finish line. So, And with that, I will stop there right here at the 30 minute mark. So that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn and send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.